Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Working for Women podcast. I'm Dr. Jamie Wells, a visiting fellow with the Independent Women's Forum and Director of Medicine at the American Council on Science and Health. Today, I am thrilled to speak with the incredibly accomplished cancer researcher, Dr. Richard Pastel, about metastatic breast cancer, triple negative breast cancer, what is hopeful on the horizon, as well as what obstacles are impeding more rapid progress in treatments. This is important because with such aggressive diseases especially, there shouldn't be an unnecessary lag time in getting vital therapies from the lab bench to the patient bedside. So thank you for joining us today, Dr. Pastel. Dr. Wells, it's a pleasure. Pleasure to be with you. (laughs) I am so exhausted from reading your resume, I have to tell you. To say you're prolific is an understatement. You've trained from Mass General to Harvard, run oncology departments, led cancer centers, have about 58,000 citations of your work, or top ranked in oncology, breast cancer, prostate cancer, and on and on. So I would love to begin with what drives you to pursue this work in the first place, and what do you hope to achieve realistically in your lifetime? Oh, goodness. Uh, Johnny, that's a great <laughs> question. Um, you know, Jamie, uh, both, both my parents died of cancer, metastatic cancer. Uh, my, my mother died first, and, uh, you know, I the last time I saw her, she was uh, showing me in the kitchen her yoga moves uh, and how flexible she was. And uh, next time I saw her, she was, uh, uh, unfortunately, she, she passed away. And uh, my father died about a year later. And so I think um, my father was a surgeon. My mother was a nurse. Uh, you know, they uh, loved each other dearly, and uh, you know, uh, my father was a strapping, strong, six foot three, blue eyes, you know, high jump and sprint champion. And I remember being with him in his final days, and he couldn't, uh, you know, couldn't get out of bed. So uh, metastatic cancer can bring the strongest man or strongest woman to their knees. And so I've spent, uh, I think, most of my life uh, trying to focus on this problem. So yes, well, I think I that's mean, probably you've already the made tremendous. I'm sorry, what was that? No, I was going to say that's probably what uh, what drives, in answer to your question as to what uh, what drives this, um, I think it's probably a personal uh, personal story that drives it. Yeah. Well, the world is very fortunate that you've chosen to direct your attention to these things because most people tend to be touched by cancer in their lifetime, whether it's with a loved one or themselves. So um, we're appreciative that this is the work you choose to do, I have to say. If you wouldn't mind... Um, pivoting to uh, talking about how we can put metastatic disease into context for the audience who's unaware of it, you know, speaking specifically to metastatic breast cancer, triple negative breast cancer, and inflammatory breast cancer, you speak about how these things can take people to their knees, honestly. Uh, If you could talk about what treatments are available now and their limitations, what those terms actually mean, and, and why you're so excited about the current work you're doing and how that can tremendous things with targeted treatments, you know, really address the big things with metastatic breast cancer in particular. And Jamie, I think it's very important for everybody listening to understand that there's been a very important shift in thinking. So when I went to medical school, people thought about cancer as a disease. You see a lump and uh, the mm-hmm. treatment was to treat that original lump. But now we know that the cancer is circulating in the bloodstream and we can actually now measure those cancer cells circulating in the bloodstream. And so I think a good example is uh, if we think of cancer like we think of diabetes. So in the case of diabetes, the pancreas 
is a, is a real problem to fix once a patient has diabetes. However, we can manage the circulating blood glucose. And so the shift in thinking uh, in my laboratory has been how can we manage the circulating tumor cells? Because just like the blood sugar in diabetes, which affects the blood vessels in the eyes, which affects the kidneys, which ultimately leads to the death of the patient. So the cancer cells circulating in the bloodstream ultimately leads to the death of the patient. And so what we've tried to do is to find a new approach to treating the metastatic, the circulating cancer cells in the bloodstream. Because we've, if we can block the spread of the disease, we can block the circulation of these tumor cells in the bloodstream, then a patient can live with their cancer. So Jamie, we set about trying to understand what drives the blood circulating cancer cells. And just like a car that's uh, driving on the road, uh, there's a key that you turn to turn on the engine and make the car drive. And we found one of the key ways in which a cancer cell starts to spread is through a, a receptor. And that receptor is called CCR5. And very, this is very surprising, but this receptor, CCR5, is turned on when a cell becomes cancerous. Normal cells don't have it. Normal breast cells don't have CCR5. Normal prostate doesn't have CCR5. In fact, it's only expressed on a small subset of cells. Uh, these are cells involved in the immune response. So the change has been when we looked at 2,200 patients with breast cancer, we found looking for something that could be driving the spread of the cancer, that this receptor is turned on in 50% of patients with breast cancer and nearly all the patients with triple negative breast cancer. And so when we found that nearly all these patients with triple negative breast cancer turn on CCR5, we asked the question, what does CCR5 do? And we found that CCR5 is driving the spread of the cancer cells in the bloodstream. And if we block CCR5 in the preclinical studies, we can block the spread of breast cancer to the lungs uh, almost completely. So well, this I think is an exciting people, opportunity. It, it is exciting because I think people need to understand that traditional chemotherapies don't often just kill the cancer cells. They can kill people's healthy cells. So what you're working on, if you could touch on why it's different than what it does for a patient that's different than traditional chemotherapy, that would be helpful. Absolutely. So, so, Jamie, it's very important to understand exactly what you said. Most chemotherapies circulate throughout the body and they affect all the proliferating cells in the body. And that's why people who take chemo and these other types of uh, drugs um, have uh, diarrhea and vomiting. Um, basically, every cell that proliferates is affected by chemotherapy. Now, in the case of this new discovery, CCR5, it's only expressed on the cancer cells that spread through the bloodstream. And the other cells it's expressed on are a small subset of, of T cells. Now, the reason we know this is a perfect target is uh, people can live without CCR5. In fact, people who have mutations for CCR5 uh, don't get HIV infections. Uh, mm. they don't, they're resistant to bubonic plague. So it's a, a very unique opportunity, a very unique receptor. And as you say, it's uniquely expressed just on these uh, 
you know, it's cancer cells and a subset of immune cells. And so, yes, indeed, we're able to target very specifically just those cancer cells that are spreading in the bloodstream. And ideally for patients, that would mean less side effects than traditional therapies, which cause a lot of the problems. Do you think Jamie, that... Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sorry? No, Jamie, I was going to say, what you say is true. Not, not only is the, the side effects less, but the particular uh, antibody that we are using in a clinical trial that has just uh, only in November this year been approved for triple negative breast cancer uh, has now been tested in more than 660 patients and shown to have no uh, no serious adverse events. So yes, it's it's uh, a very um, this technology, this antibody to CCR5 that is now open now uh, being tested in a clinical trial. Uh, has been used in a large number of patients without any serious adverse events. And so we know this technology is selective and we know this technology is safe. So when um, people get diagnoses like these, and if you can put that into framework, I think you said something like with metastatic breast cancer, the life expectancy of some of these things are 12 months after diagnosis, which um, obviously makes people... Uh, that's not always the case by any stretch of the imagination. Um, we want there's always hope, and there are always different treatments and things. But that's why a lot of these um, diagnoses can be overwhelming. How do people best learn of the right clinical trials for them and the right treatments for them, and advocate for themselves and a loved one when they get diagnoses like these with the more aggressive forms? What would you recommend? Jamie, you're, you're, you're absolutely right that. Of all the different types of metastatic breast cancer, triple negative breast cancer is the most deadly. And many patients, most patients are dead within within a year and, and, and a year and a half. And so, yes, this is a very deadly form of, of, um, of metastatic breast cancer. And it's more common in uh, the African-American community. It's more common in women with uh, Ashkenazi Jewish background. And, uh, and right now, there's no targeted therapy for triple negative breast cancer. And so the finding that CCR5 is turned on in triple negative breast cancer, for me, is personally a very exciting opportunity. The way in which patients find out about opportunities for treatment of of cancer in general is through a website, uh, NIH, uh, theclinicaltrials.gov. It's a very good record of the clinical trials that are currently open to accrual. so this is uh, one way in which patients can be empowered to look for the clinical trials that are open in their particular disease site, so clinicaltrials.gov. Mm-hmm. And in general, we find that uh, National Cancer Institute designated cancer centres uh, have access usually to a broad record of new clinical trials. And I certainly would encourage patients to become very active in their own management. It's very empowering. Um, and certainly the, the, the uh, NCI-based, National Cancer Institute-based clinical trial, trials um, run through the NCI-designated cancer centres usually provide patients with what is the best at the moment and what could potentially be better than what's available at the moment through a clinical trial. And that speaks to a lot of um, the current design of things. You know, some amount of regulation uh, in the field of research and development is important to protect patient safety, but it's also important that there's a balance so that 
innovation isn't stifled. As a cancer researcher who's made a lot of advances so far and has many yet to come, my faith is in you. <laughs> what frustrates you most about the current design of research and development for targeted therapies, and, and what would be your perfect system of getting uh, your work from idea to the lab to the patient in the most expedited way that's safest for them? Great. Uh, Jenny, great question. So, uh, as you know, I've been looking after patients for on and off since I started first looking after patients back almost 37 years ago. And during that time, uh, I think what I've realized is the, the opportunities are very much in the United States. So the opportunities here uh, have been, are, and will be in the future uh, in the US because this is where the innovators, the entrepreneurs, and the uh, federal government funding for new ideas on the treatment of cancer are available. And I think also there's a can-do attitude here. It's American, not American't. Mm. So in terms of the, uh, you know, the, the way in which uh, the disease is going to be cured, uh, it, ta it takes a critical mass of mm -hmm. enthusiastic people with new ideas which are resourced with a, a federal government um, to move things forward. In addition, I would say that the use of capital markets, a buoyant economy uh, like the US and, and many other countries, but the use of capital markets to fund the uh, important new discoveries through biotechnology companies and big pharma is also critical in, in moving discoveries forward. Uh, there's a gap which occurs between academia and the patient's bedside. Um, mm -hmm. Some people refer to this as the accountability gap um, because there has to be accountability of academic organisations to the patients they ultimately serve. The capital markets, biotech companies, investors, um, are part of the key in bringing those discoveries from the bench at academic organisations to the bedside where patients need it most. So in terms of and frustration... what do you think the resistance is in the academic realm in terms of, you know, we, we live in a culture of, you know, academia is pure and, and industry and things are less pure, but they all need to integrate with one another, in my view, to advance these kinds of diseases. Where, what, how do you think that you can make a change in that so we can get the most quickest, the most quick uh, treatments that are safest to people uh, with all of these things at play? Well, Jamie, you know, in, in answering your question about the fastest way to get these discoveries uh, from, a, from a person's mind to, right. to a patient's bedside, the first part of my answer was do it in America because mm -hmm. that's where a lot of people have marched, they've voted with their feet, they've come to the U.S., and they've said, this is where we're going to make a difference. This is where we're going to make these discoveries. And this is where new medicines are going to be translated into patient care. So the first part of this formula is an environment which welcomes the innovators, entrepreneurs, academicians, and the people with great ideas to work together in a collaborative environment. The next step really is how do you fund, fund something like that? And again, having a buoyant economy to fund it is part of that solution. But then when you get granular, 
as you're asking now, and say, what is it within academic environments that are a barrier to translating these discoveries? I think there have to be uh, checks and balances in place um, at academic organisations where there is a distinct type of responsibility in academic organisations, but there has to be a smooth pass-off. So if you think of uh, you know, academic organisations, they're quarterbacks and they, they have a you know, small biotechs running, uh, running the ball, or they have uh, aquapreneurial environments which run the ball. But there has to be this smooth handoff. Uh, some places do it extremely well. City of Hope does it extremely well. Mm. Uh, many of the NCI-designated cancer centres are great quarterbacks to pass these, uh, pass these balls on to small biotech startups. But nowhere does it better than the U.S. Well, that is very encouraging and wonderful to hear. And I, um, it's, I sadly, we're running short on time. I feel like I could talk to you forever about this. But I, I do want to know what you think the most crucial take-home points would be on this topic before we do run out of time. What do you want to leave people with? How can they make a difference in terms of supporting your work and and how can people reach out to you and learn more about what it is that you're doing and the ways that can be helpful in our culture to advance uh, such progress in cancer research? Well, I'd say the most powerful force in change are advocates and the, the vocal and enthusiastic voice of patients and patient advocates are mm. an absolutely essential part of driving these new discoveries to cures. Uh, breast cancer and other cancer types, advocacy groups, particularly in the US, have been absolutely instrumental in driving new technologies to make and, and bring dramatic improvements in the, in the lifespan of people. And what could be more valuable than providing an extension of life to your loved ones? So in closing, if there was one message is everyone is listening. Uh, if you have loved ones who are affected by this disease, become involved in this process because the one place in the world where this could really happen is through advocacy uh, in, in this country, using the discoveries that are taking place every day, getting behind this and helping push things towards the, the patient and towards the bedside. I, I have to say thank you so much for taking the time with us today. And this is such a topic that is on everyone's hearts. And I know with people like you with this kind of passion and dedication, we'll be making differences. And we already have. In, in the short, you have a lot of life left in you, so we expect great things for me to continue. So, so thank you for being here today. Thanks to the audience for joining our conversation. If you enjoyed this interview, consider subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and leaving a rating or review for us. You can learn more about the topic on IWF.org, and we'll see you next week. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by IWF.org for similar content.